0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There are just three weeks to go until Election Day, which, of course, is a misnomer because today's an election day. Every day's an election day because it's 2020. Uh, what a bizarre day, though. Uh, we're joined by uh, our own political columnist, Amanda Carpenter, to try to break everything down. Uh, good morning, Amanda. How are you?
1: Hey, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I actually woke up feeling pretty good this morning. And that's because, well, A, I was angry when I saw the photos of people standing in the ridiculously long lines in Georgia to early vote. But at the same time, that made me wonder if all our concern about the looming electoral chaos has worked right? Like, it seems like people have made a plan. People want to get their votes locked in early. They're ready. They're going to stand in line on the first day. And so that, that gave me some hope, even though I'm so sorry people had to do that.
0: No, I the, the level of enthusiasm is just overwhelming. The question is whether or not the, you know, that's already baked into the polls. I mean, we're seeing this in the return of the early ballots, absentee ballots in the state of Wisconsin, um, where the numbers are just through the ceiling. I mean, I think the turnout numbers in 2020 are are going to they're going to make everybody do a make everybody do a double take. So you woke up feeling kind of good today. It's interesting because this is the question that I think a lot of people are asking themselves: is is it is it too soon to actually start thinking that this is real, that this is actually going to happen? Because there's this tremendous. I mean, we've talked about this before, and we do suffer from the PTSD. Everybody knows this. So, and by I want to get to this a little bit later because. I, I wrote a piece today. Twelve reasons why 2020 is is different than 2016 because we're still living in the 2016 shadow. But tell me why else you're you're feeling you're feeling somewhat optimistic. Obviously, you haven't spoken to Tim Miller or or JBL lately, so.
1: I know, well, that's why I had to say I'm going out on a limb because no. I know it's not our posture to be no. happy, no. but right. I kind of am. I mean, throw it in my face later if this doesn't turn out. But you know, we have forgotten what it feels like to feel excited. I guess the last time I felt sort of happy was the day that Steve Bannon got arrested. <laughs> it felt like oh, there is such a thing as karma. Justice can be done.
0: You are in a dark so, place, Amanda. You. Hey, hey, dark I look place. for
1: silver linings wherever they may be. I, I will not apologize for that.
0: You know, every once in a while, I'll say something like that. And, and my wife will say, Charlie, you don't want to be that person. And I say, but I am that person. I am. I, and I've been but that person for a the only thing that makes you time. happy. <laughs> That's right. I'm so, I'm I'm sorry that the Schadenfre- schadenfreude is is the is the only drug that I have access to these days so um, <laughs> it's legal I, it is
1: legalized schadenfreude
0: <laughs> okay so you're actually feeling feeling somewhat good
1: yeah I'm a, I'm a little slap happy I you know we'll, we'll see where it goes we'll see where the week takes us
0: well let's talk about wh- where we're at right now because the president is you know completely recovered from the coronavirus right we, we know that uh, he's absolutely immune he has superpowers and he went down to Florida to have this uh, this amazing super spreader event and this is what he said. The thing with me, the nice part I went through it now they say I'm immune I can feel I feel so powerful I'll walk into that audience I'll walk in there I'll kiss everyone in that audience I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them. Everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss. See, I, man, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm guessing that's gonna tingle up the legs of of suburban housewives all over the country.
1: Well, continuing with my theme of the dark places where I find happiness, um, how does it feel for men to think about being kissed without their consent? Without consent, a nice little wet, sloppy COVID kiss yeah. from Donald Trump. How's I- that feel, men? You like it? You so like he, it?
0: he wasn't going to grab anybody, though. No, it actually almost felt like he wants to replay the Access Hollywood thing a- again this this time, except in the middle of a pandemic that has killed with 215,000 Americans. So this goes to well, the fat, the fat Elvis theme, that stuff that that worked for him four years ago just is not playing well. I and mean, he was kind of edgy and he was novel and maybe entertaining four years ago. He's trying this stuff now in the middle of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and he just comes off as grotesque. I'm I'm sorry. Well, weird moment.
1: I, I would like to nominate Ron DeSantis as the first man to receive the Trump COVID man kiss. Did you see the video of Ron I DeSantis bet. running up through the crowd, slapping hands with everybody, like you know he's some NBA star going to the big game on the way to this? Did you see that video?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
1: <sighs>
0: and the and the end of it.
1: Oh, what was the end of it?
0: Oh, see, so. So, so Rhonda, there's this event. And I don't punish first,
1: myself right, that much. Th-
0: there was no social distancing. People were not wearing masks. It is like, it's like they're celebrating the fact that they don't give a shit uh, ab- ab- about this, which is an extraordinary message for the last three weeks of the campaign. And the governor of Florida is, is running through the crowd, doing the high fives. And then right at the end, he puts the hand that he'd been doing the high fives with on his face. Some oh, people no. think, some people think that he was doing some nose business. I don't know. I, I not going there but it was are I you kidding me that. so I mean I, I must know, have
1: been watching Kimberly Guilflo and wondering you know what private plane she's gonna fly back in courtesy of those generous Trump donors okay
0: uh, you know I mean the, the part about this that it, it is a little bit breathtaking you know and I, I used the term yesterday um, depraved indifference that's actually a legal term uh, you know uh, it, uh, depra- what's the
1: punishment? how many years I mean,
0: yeah depraved <laughs> indifference is is evinced by conduct that is wanton deficient in a moral sense of concern. And devoid of regard for the life or lives of others. Which so it's like gross to,
1: negligence.
0: Well, beyond that, beyond that. I mean, it just, that's why it's called depraved indifferent. It's not just uh. indifferent, not just, uh, it's, it's sort of like actively, um, reckless. And it really is a kind of, it is an apt description of the Trump campaign's strategy right now. I mean, and, 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 and they're so in your face, you know, Mark Meadows. In front of reporters, refuses to talk to them oh, yeah. while wearing a mask. And uh, you know, in Wisconsin, they have you know, failed son Eric Trump comes here to my you know area in Milwaukee suburb. He has a has a, a spreader rally in the basement of a bowling alley in Menominee <laughs> Falls, Wisconsin, on the day Amanda, the day yes, it was the day that Wisconsin had a new record number of people hospitalized because of the coronavirus. And they drop in Eric Trump to do one of those maskless events. It's just, I, I'm know. just
1: getting the image of a basement rager built as yeah. the depraved, indifferent COVID rally, and then Eric Trump is flown in and like, you know, a tank top and a bandana on his head, oh. and there's thumping music and it's just COVID kisses everywhere.
0: Yeah, the right? co- the the, co- the COVID kisses. I mean, this is. Um...
1: I feel like that should be a song.
0: I think it's a band name, actually. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the president in this uh, this increasingly nasty fight with uh, Doctor Anthony Fauci, who uh, Fauci has sort of has reached the point where he's he's like done with it. Okay, I'm I'm not I'm not pretending anymore that this is a media game. Um, you know, his relationship with with Trump is pretty awful, and he says, I mean, this, the the language he uses by doing this against my will, he's talking about taking his words out of context in an ad they are in effect harassing me second about the the trump campaign ad uh so there's there's that and uh i
1: well number one i kind of appreciate his new posture which is essentially like go ahead and fire me right he he's pretty much there and he's sort of calling trump's bluff because trump can't fire Dr. Fauci. I mean, he could, but Fauci is well-trusted, and I don't think that's going to go over well. Uh, But also, just how many people have been used without their consent by the Trump administration or by the Trump campaign in these ads? Remember, there was the people from the convention. uh, There's other officials coming out that uh, Lynn Patton got people at some fake HUD event to appear in the commercial. I mean, this is a thing by the Trump campaign. Yeah. They just put him in the commercial and we'll see what happens later. I mean, it's, I don't know. Is that depraved indif- indifference too?
0: Well, but part of the depraved indifference is, is the fact that the president is aggressively now lying about, um, the, the status of the coronavirus, virus saying that, you know he's, that he's immune, that, that he's, that he's got a cure yeah. for this. Uh, you have, you have Eric, uh, who it's is I'm the guy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, Eric is saying, well, he got the, the vaccine and all of this stuff. So you can almost break down the Trump failures into, into three major categories. I'm sure we could, we could do a better job with this. You know, his failure early on, which is well documented. Mm-hmm. The, the Then his decision to, uh, to downplay it, even as it was coming back in the second wave, the aggressive push to open everything up, uh, the politicization of masks would be phase two. Now he's just out there, just completely bullshitting about the danger and and putting people's lives at risk. Oh, did, we, did you uh, see Ivanka's uh, little tape?
1: Let's,
0: Unfortunately,
1: let's, yeah. yes. All
0: right, let's let's play. Let's play. Uh, this is Ivanka Trump uh, sharing her insights into the handling of the coronavirus.
1: I know what the loss of life could have been if he had not taken. Such- early action to close our country, to travel first from China and then from Europe, unheard of. These are unprecedented actions at a time when most people, you know, except through the lens of revisionist history, most people were not taking it very seriously um, on the Hill or elsewhere.
0: Well, that, Amanda, is uh, the definition of revisionist history, isn't it?
1: it's kind of funny how they're stealing the old Obama line about the stimulus, about, you know, the jobs we saved that can never actually be counted. It's, it's kind of a riff on that, but you just listen to her and it's like, does she believe her own crap? I mean, really, did, did she practice it in the mirror and that fake breathy voice and kind of put on that plastic look? I mean, is it rehearsed? It has to be at this point. I mean, I guess we could get into the psychology of what it's like to be a Trump child, but I'm just not that interested enough in in her, in her psychology. But how, just how did she get through the day? Is it the millions? Is it the mansion? Like, how how do you do it?
0: Well, she's a tortured soul because uh, you know that she's never going to be able to go back to the New York society life that she used to. Uh-uh. In, in yeah, well, you know, it's like it's the, the world's smallest violence. We are mean today. I don't know. There's something about I, well,
1: It's because of what's make, it makes us happy
0: i admit it. It may. And people ought to understand. No, you guys are better than that. Apparently we are not. Hey, uh, before we go, we go. Hey, uh, These
1: are all these are all on target.
0: I, I know. I know. They're then we got to own our feelings on all of this. So on Anthony Fauci, before we get too far past this, and this is really an extraordinary story because we've waited for a long time. Um, you know, w- was there going to be a breaking point? Would there come? You know, would there be an end to the Fauci and the bargain? Um, and because early on, I thought this is a good thing that, that Anthony Fauci is swallowing a lot of his pride and going along with this because you want him in the room because mm-hmm. him being in the room probably is is saving life. So, in fact, you know, that trade off was probably, you know, good. But as time went on, like all these bargains, uh, the price gets higher and higher and higher. And now you have this complete break. Um. So, uh, you know, s- speaking of Anthony Fauci, I mean, we, we people have to watch or listen to this new ad from uh, Olivia Troy uh, for uh, Republican voters against Trump. Of course, she was one of the uh, top officials in the Department of uh, of Homeland Security. Um, and I'm sorry, was she with the Department of Homeland Security? Is that was that her position? Uh, um, I
1: believe she was there and then she got transferred to the White House coronavirus task. Force. Yeah,
0: that, OK, so uh, she was she was uh, on the coronavirus. So th- this is this is Olivia Troy. Talking about the way that Donald Trump sidelined and trashed Dr. Fauci privately and publicly.
1: I'm Olivia Troy. I worked on the coronavirus task force from day one side by side with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I witnessed Donald Trump and senior White House officials routinely sideline and discredit Dr. Fauci both privately and publicly. And now, the Trump campaign is twisting Dr. Fauci's words in a campaign ad for their own political gain. It's gross and upsetting, and typical of a White House that has no regard for the truth. For Donald Trump, it's always about him. For Dr. Fauci, it's always been about serving the American people. Join me as a Republican and former Trump administration staffer who is voting for Joe Biden.
0: That is a killer I mean, it just, it is, it, this testimony that we're getting from, from inside. So this is all the context of the last three weeks of, of this campaign. Now, um, we, we should talk about the, the Supreme Court hearings, although there's a, there's sort of a, a remarkable lack of, uh, of suspense there. So let, let, let's, let's set that aside. You know, I, I tell me where I'm wrong on this. Um, Amanda, I, 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 I keep thinking through. You know where we are 20, you know, 21 days out. And we all know the way that Donald Trump can still win this election. OK, I'm not saying that he's going to do it. We we, we know okay. that that last time he he drew the inside straight, to use that old cliche, by getting 70,000 votes in, in certain key states. No one, by the way, no one on earth thinks that Donald Trump is going to win the popular vote. You know, you know, this is like a, a, a side note here. Since 1988, the Republican Party has won the popular vote for the presidency just one time. Think about that. Just one time. They won in 2004. They have not won the popular vote uh, other than that since 1980. And as far as I know, there's not a single Republican who is bothered by that in any way. Have you noticed that?
1: Yeah. I mean, they think it, we just have to go for the Electoral College. Yeah. Why should we even bother talking to blue state voters? And maybe we're reaching the natural end of that experiment.
0: It may be. So, so Trump can win again, not by winning the popular vote, but by eking out this Electoral College victory. And you know, there, there are ways to do that. But But having said that, it just feels that 2020 is fundamentally different than 2016. I mean, back then, voters wanted to burn it down. Th- this year, I think they want normalcy. Back then, you know, you didn't think that Trump could actually win. Therefore, it was it was shocking. So there was a certain amount of complacency. People could play around with the Joel Steins of the world. They could engage in ideological purity or they could sit home. That's not going to happen. Um this time around, as I said, this is John Heilman's phrase. There, there is that, that fat Elvis feel to Trump that it's just gotten old and, and, and grotesque. And I also just think that, you know, he's lost his lizard instinct. It used to be that he would have this, this reptilian instinct for what played with the voters. Now he's just throwing stuff up against the wall and he's engaging in all of these old battles, these old grievances. I mean, nobody gives a shit about Hillary's emails anymore, right?
1: Well, the thing that makes, Trump's act not fun anymore, is that over the past four years, he has revealed the core of the Republican Party, the core of people like Lindsey Graham and Martha McSally, who in the past would just be considered, you know, standard issue, perfectly reliable Republicans who should be able to easily win their elections this year. Right. But Look at what Donald Trump has turned Lindsey Graham into. And maybe he was this, you know, sort of conniving, slavish person all along. But we didn't know it. We knew him as John McCain's buddy. And now just to watch himself turn himself inside out, supporting Trump and going on Fox News and begging for those donations. I mean, how is that working out for him? Isn't Jamie Harrison up to like $58 million this quarter or something obscene?
0: No, that's one of the most amazing stories of, of the years, is, is what's happening with the money, this, this green tsunami. But I, but since you mentioned Lindsey Graham, because <laughs> look, since, since we're doing the Schadenfreude thing, how delicious would it be if Lindsey Graham, who's given up every bit of his manhood and his pride, were to go down in, in this, in this election because he tied himself so closely to, to Donald Trump. But I find it, it's hilarious this morning. Um, he's been complaining about how much money Jamie Harrison has raised. And now suddenly he's becoming a convert to campaign finance reform. (laughs) No way. Isn't isn't that interesting? So, you know, there are Republicans who are like the party of unlimited big money. And now they're going, hey, you know, this big money in politics thing might actually be a problem. That's so classic Lindsay. No, I think I I, know your your, your point here is and I've tried to make this point over and over again. That, that I think, I think the worst part about Trump is not Trump himself. It's what Trump has done to other people and the day in and day out seeing him do something absolutely awful uh, and, and, and yet knowing that he will you know have the acquiescence and the support of, of people that he used to know and trust.
1: You know, I just, you got me thinking about the campaign finance angle. And yeah. all of these stories, I mean, Mitch McConnell is signaling to people, hey, we might really be in trouble here, guys. This it's money thing. Like, you think, you know, what is this act blue? Every time I look, there's act blue and these donations coming from I don't know where. But they, they still can't get out of this model where they just go to Sheldon Adelson and these other big donors for million dollar checks to their super PACs and call it good. Right? Like this kind of gets back to the electoral college and popular vote question. They're, they're just not used to getting broad based support. um, And they're just based their campaigns on going to big donors, getting a couple of is- buckets of big cash and calling it good. Right. So it's it's a broader question that is so, Interesting to see play out and how freaked out they are.
0: This is very interesting, and I think you put your finger on something. When I was reading about uh, Act Blue last night. I you know I, this is not something that I've studied or paid a, a huge amount of attention to, but this is the culmination of years of work on the part of the Democrats who have conditioned small donors to uh, to make these these donations. When anything happens in the news, their instinct is to go to Act Blue and they you know put in five bucks, ten bucks, fifteen bucks, fifty bucks, whatever it is. Whereas the Republicans had become really addicted, as you put it, you know to the 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 Sheldon Adelsons you know just go and have somebody write out a multimillion dollar check, and normally that gives them a tremendous advantage until you realize that that Act Blue is you know raising you know that amount of money every month, so Sheldon Adelson you know announced he was writing a check for fifty million dollars you know game changer except that Act Blue is raising fifty million dollars a month,
1: yeah um, and, so- and every time. You know, Lindsey Graham pops up on television. Jamie Harrison's people give him another twenty-five bucks. It, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, every, every time, every
0: time Lindsey Graham. I think you you said this on Twitter, right? Yeah. Every, every time Lindsey Graham goes on Fox News to grovel for more money, it seems to have the opposite effect. So. Yeah,
1: I kind of asked the open question, like, is it isn't mm-hmm. this what's happening? And then I had a number of people in my feed replying, "Yes." Every time I see him speak, I give five or ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I, 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 so I was backfiring like he's Lindsey Graham is almost a commercial at this point for his opponent. Isn't that funny?
0: Well, it it, it, it it is. And, and the fact that we're sitting here talking about a competitive Senate race in South Carolina is mind blowing. The fact that. Oh, people can we are, just do
1: one more are, thing on the yeah, Senate Alaska, race.
0: Kansas? Yeah, go, please.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I watched a couple of clips of Mitch McConnell's debate oh, with Amy that was, McGrath. That was bad. Who, who Amy McGrath is, is not a good speaker. Okay. No. I don't think she's a good candidate. I don't think she's a good campaigner. But somehow Mitch McConnell is so trapped in his high and mighty Senate bubble that he turned to her and said, well, I think I can just sum up what my candidate's about. She's a Marine. She's a mom. And she thinks I've been here too long. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly it. She should make you into a commercial, too.
0: Well, I, and then he laughs when she's talking about his failure in the coronavirus. He has that weird, nervous laugh that he apparently like, this is so ridiculous. OK, I want to bounce something off you here. Um, uh, Tim Alberta has a piece in Politica, which I, I just started reading right before we started the podcast, um, where he makes a number of you know last minute points. But he says, he says a biden blowout will divorce trump from the gop establishment and quickly. Okay, so my initial reaction was nah, that mm-hmm. hasn't happened. But then what he's talking about is, he's talking about what will happen if if trump loses badly and he refuses to accept the results of the election. And I agree with him on this that no matter how big biden wins, there will be no gracious concession by donald trump that he will he will fight it, he will resist it no matter what the margin is. Uh, So, you know, because his vanity compels him to cry foul no matter what the outcome. So then this is what Tim writes. The more important question is how the Republican Party would respond to his loss. This is something GOP leaders are actively thinking about. And from what I can gather, it could very well represent the breaking point of Trump's relationship with the GOP establishment. Here's why. If the election turns out to be a photo finish. Republicans will have the luxury of ignoring the president's most sinister allegations. They can point to narrow margins and recall procedures and say with some plausibility the president is right, okay? If, on the other hand, the election's a blowout and Trump is flinging wild accusations about wild, uh, widespread fraud and deep state conspiracies to take him down, Republicans will be forced to choose a side. They will either stand with a battered, soon to be former president whose days in office are numbered whether he likes it or not, or they will stand with the democratic norms that have guided the nation for 244 years. So there's reason to be skeptical. But he do, he does think that re- the Republican establishment, this will be their la- their final off ramp of Trumpism.
1: Hmm. What,
0: do you, what, what do you think?
1: I haven't read the piece. Yeah. I adore Tim Alberta. But I guess my first question is, how is he defining the GOP establishment?
0: Well, the Mitch
1: McConnells of the world. But okay, but that's just him. Do we really think in an election scenario, Mitch McConnell isn't going to fight to the death to keep a Republican president? I mean, I I sort of I am willing to indulge the fantasy that, yes, this would be McConnell's chance to finally cut Trump loose, because I do think McConnell despises him. But at the same time, he's gone along with that. Like what what evidence do we have that that could come true? It's plausible, but the Republican establishment is, okay, de- definitionally, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, the RNC, the other assorted Republican committees, they're, they're not going to give them up. Maybe they won't fight as hard, but I, I i see them going along with this. I mean, look at the Republican Senate. They're all going to fight for it. Ted Cruz's, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, all the rest. Who, who exactly is going to go? Against the green here. This will will, Mitt Romney in a couple tweets, which, you know, that's fine.
0: And this will be the new litmus test, you know, whether you stood with them on this. So I guess guess I've I've had the same thought that Tim uh, Alberta has here Mm -hmm. that, that, that this would be a moment for them to kind of you know move on. But on the other hand, that that requires you to, you know, to ignore the last four years of history and everything you know about the character of these men. Okay, so tell me about the polls. What you're reading on the polls, because I'm I'm looking for what I'm missing, and I, I've asked no. this question over and over again. The national polls are now quite consistent. You know, eight to twelve points, uh, whatever. Uh, the state by state polls. You had the Siena poll out yesterday, showing a uh, big lead for Biden in Wisconsin. I had a big lead in Michigan. Um, Florida is 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 closer. Uh, some of these states that are. Uh, that that should be solidly Trump or, or or not? What what are you looking at, and how are you reading these polls that that is, that is causing you to feel somewhat optimistic today?
1: Well, the, number one, they're stable, right? Yeah, They've been stable it. for a long time, and now they're opening up in a way that I'm I'm not f- fully willing to believe for Joe Biden, but in a way that indicates things are still stable. But more so, I'm looking at how the Senate races are going, um, which. Seem to be terribly for Republicans. I've been. I'm probably going to have a piece coming soon about Kelly Loeffler in her race down in Georgia, where she's in this jungle primary trying to out conservative Doug Collins, who is you know extremely Trumpy conservative, who has good name ID in the state and all the rest. But that's not the really important point. The important point is that she's trailing the Democrat by six points in Georgia, where you're seeing that super high. Uh, enthusiasm. And so, yes, it looks bad for Trump, but actually, does it look even worse for Republican senators? Uh, I sort of think so.
0: Yeah. Well, that gives you a sense of the, of the mood of the electorate. So I'm looking at these polls as as well and noting that, you know, that Joe Biden is polling better than any challenger since 1936. He's the <laughs>
1: first- funny? like, hold on. I had this talk with my husband over the weekend. Joe Biden is doing everything right, but yeah. does he deserve really this lead? Isn't it he just kind of being gifted as being the perfect oh, candidate for the perfect it, time?
0: It, that's exactly right. That's a, by the way. That's that's it in a nutshell. That he's the perfect candidate in the perfect time. He's the perfect candidate for a year in which people are exhausted and they want to be. They want a boring president. He's the perfect candidate for the <laughs> pandemic where you can sit in your basement. He's the perfect candidate. By I mean, in so many ways. So, I mean, look at, look at this. I know the 2016 still haunts people. So the final polling average, 538 polling average was Clinton 50, I'm sorry, Clinton 45.7, Trump 41.8. Today, it's Biden 52.2, Trump 41.9. Real clear politics average, Biden up by 10 points. Uh, not a lot of action on, on the third parties. So even, this is Dave Wasserman, even at the height of Clinton's lead after Access Hollywood, she was up just 6.9% on the 538 average. And that's, uh, and so, and she never was above 46% really in that average. So that, that's, that's a far cry from 52%. So Clinton's lead in 2016 just is not the same ballpark as Biden's today. And then you come back to, What people forget about the end of the 2016 campaign, I'm sure you remember, he actually toned it down there near the end. I mean, he had all the rallies and stuff and he was he was Trump, but he was actually he actually exercised some more discipline and restraint in the tweets in the final days. And right now he's in the all cap rants phase of the campaign.
1: Yeah. In probably the undertold story that explains Biden's uh, bigger lead is the absence of the third party choice. I think people did a really good job earlier this year, sort of eliminating that possibility and saying this isn't a year where you can throw away your vote and sort of keep your conscience clean by writing somebody in or doing third party as a lot of Republicans did in 2016. And there's still a number of people in the influence industry who who, want to take that route. But eliminating that path was very important for defeating Donald Trump. I mean, even even the Trump people are still pushing Kanye Kanye West this summer. I mean, how absurd is that? And so, you think do these fringe candidates matter? Yeah, yeah, they really do. It really could make the difference. Well, um, sure. it did in 2016, and there's still people that wanted to do that. And you know, I was reading Reason magazine did a roundup of um, their writers explaining who they are voting for, and of course, most of them are going. libertarian candidate or saying, why do I vote? Doesn't matter anyway. And, you know, elections do matter. And this whole idea that a lot of people say, well, I can write in a third party candidate and be pure libertarian because my vote doesn't matter because I live in a very red or very blue state. That's sad. And that gets back to our earlier conversation about the popular vote and the electoral college. And, you know, I like the electoral college, but we do need to have a broader conversation about making voting matter and what well, voting rights are really about
0: oh I I, I agree and I live in Wisconsin, so um, I, what what I what I do actually I do feel that it matters though I do uh, no, notice that there are people who live in states that are overwhelming that they they can afford to preen a little bit. OK, so the the other thing about this election that makes it so so different is 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 the pandemic, which Donald Trump did not want to talk about. And like, let's go back to where we actually started these super events every day for the next the three big, weeks. He's going to be on television job. doing this. This is he I mean, he is really is doubling down on this message about the pandemic that is very unpopular. I mean, you know, people are not anti mask. They are concerned about this they're seeing the reckless behavior. It does seem like the worst possible closing pitches as Nate Silver did. So, although we're all obsessed with 2016, this to me is starting to feel more like 1980 and 2008. Unpopular incumbents, or you know, uh, you have a financial crisis in uh in in 2008, in 1980 you had a very very unpopular incumbent. So it feels like 1980 and 2008 with with a much bigger body count and i I don't mean to be grim about that but it's just it's just it's grimmer and uglier but it has that same dynamic as opposed to 2016
1: death cult landslide is that where we're going
0: well i'm 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 beginning to toy with that idea is that people are looking at that and going especially the 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 story of senior citizens is really quite extraordinary isn't it and i think a lot of senior citizens are looking at this are you kidding me this is why I can't see my grandkids. This is why I'm not able to live my my life uh, this this sort of way. And so it's the worst possible moment for Trump to be his worst possible self.
1: Did you see that story that the Washington Post wrote about that guy who didn't believe in COVID, wasn't into masks, and had the family gathering where his in law, like two people in his family, died? After he's yeah, been I on did. CNN the past couple of nights and. You know, he's still voting for Trump, but he's just like, I didn't believe it. Yeah, it would have been better if Donald Trump told us to wear a mask, if there was uniformity within the media and the administration telling people what to do. And the way that he likened it, he said, I feel like a drunk driver that killed my family.
0: Yeah, I did see that. But he's still voting for Trump. Yeah. Well, that's something. I mean, there is a certain back in the car. There's a keys. There's an immovability and that's one of the things about a state like Wisconsin. It's like the polls keep showing, people are dug in. It doesn't it does not matter. Okay, speaking of things that that, that may or may not matter, um, I'm struck by the fact that the Amy Coney Barrett hearings are going on and you know, under normal circumstances this would be the consuming <laughs> yeah. um debate. And right now it kind of seems like the background noise. Um Democrat I was surprised yesterday the Democrats were Surprisingly disciplined, they got the memo. Don't go after her personally. Don't go after the religion. They seem to be focusing on healthcare. Um, and so today it looks like they're just going through the motions of asking her questions. She's refusing to answer the questions. It appears to be absolutely inevitable. So, give me your sense of the, of of where Amy, the, the significance of Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which which is really a dramatic moment in American judicial history how it plays right now in this campaign.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like it's lost all the momentum. It is a done deal. I mean, just I thought people would be, you know, if they asked me three weeks ago, a month ago, when this first started to happen, before Donald Trump was diagnosed with coronavirus, I told you that this is going to be the biggest deal. Everyone eyes would be glued to the screens. ACB was going to be like Donald Trump's new running mate. And now it's just that, image of her wearing the mask in that room which should be full which is empty because strangely uh, senators are taking the coronavirus seriously in the senate building but when they go to the white house for her super spreader event they sit shoulder to shoulder you know breathing all over each other which is odd um and so i just think every is everything is about the virus everything is about coronavirus and the way that she was rolled out her announcement ceremony was a super spreader, by definition, event. Donald Trump got coronavirus and went to the hospital. And so that just cast a shadow over over the whole deal.
0: Yeah. But I, I also think that, you know, at, at this point, you know, I, I, you're, you're right. I mean, everything is, is, is overshadowed. Um, the Democrats, I think, are making the right play by emphasizing the threat to Obamacare. And I'm just, I, by the way, I'm just mm-hmm. saying this as, as, as an analytical point that, that in fact, the Supreme Court is going to be taking this up the week after the election. And, you know, sh- she could be the decisive vote that throws the whole thing out. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, I, I, I think she's probably, well, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pretend that I actually know all of her jurisprudence. I've been disappointed by people so often in the past. I'm not I'm not going on there. But the the threat to Roe versus Wade is very, very real. And it'll be interesting to know afterwards, you know, whether that provided a motivation to some voters, uh, I think, on the left that might have been uh, might have been tempted to sit this out. I mean, I, I think that the base that she appeals to, that Amy Coney Barrett really appeals to, was already there for Trump and was immovable for Trump. And therefore, she doesn't really add much. But I think in terms of the stoking the, you know, stoking the voter enthusiasm on the other side, I think it might have an effect. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I I wrote a piece uh, a couple of weeks, maybe last week, talking about how I think the Democrats should make her confirmation hearings about the election. I'm not too jazzed about making it about Obamacare. All their, They're all dead set on it. And you know yeah. maybe their polling and strategy says that's the right way to go. But if we all fear that Donald Trump is jamming through her confirmation so that he can have a stacked Supreme Court in the event of a contested election, why aren't you asking her questions about voting rights? I mean, she worked on Bush v. Gore as a law associate, associate. There's lots of questions about voting rights and the precedent uh, that exists that she could be questioned about. And I yeah. am genuinely interested in because I think this, you know, I'm dying to have this discussion. I, I think it needs to be had.
0: I, I agree. Uh, and so but I would not- have made the
1: whole thing about the election. You know, did Donald Trump ask you for loyalty, you know, in, in any of your meetings? I mean, just really grill her on if she's a hack or not for Donald Trump. It so would she's, be. She's not I gonna want to hear me. it.
0: Yeah, she's basically not going to answer. She was but asked if you this ask morning- her
1: questions about precedent, and just decisions that she has made, cases she has worked on, I, I think you have to talk about that. You can't say it's a hypothetical when you say, well, why was this case wrongly decided? You wrote this dissent or you ruled this way. I wish there would be more questioning of actual cases of these nominees because I don't think there's a way to wriggle out of those specific targeted questions.
0: Oh, I think she can wriggle out of anything. She was asked this morning, Does the president have the power to unilaterally delay a national election? This is easy. The answer is no. Uh, It would take an act of Congress to change the date of the election. And she didn't answer. She said she didn't want to be a legal pundit. So oh, she, but she
1: played a- one on TV a couple weeks ago, you know.
0: Yeah, a couple years ago, but uh, so I, I don't mm. think that that's going to have the effect. I do wonder. I think there's always the danger that folks like us overanalyze everything. I wonder oh, yeah. about whether there's a, a small subset of, of of voters somewhere who, once she is confirmed, will go, "Okay, we've done that." I don't need to vote for Trump anymore. I voted for Trump because of the court. I've supported Trump because of the court, but we've got the court. I just can't take four more years of it. In other words, that he's given away one of his key cards. I, I don't know whether people actually think that way, whether they reason that way, but I do think that there's a set of conservatives who will say, all right, you know what? Um, we're going to lose Trump, but at least we got the court. It's not the worst of all things, right? I mean, there, you can all you, you can always sense that there, there's a, no ex post facto justification for for Trumpism, you know, that that we've we, we've got we got what we wanted and we can move on.
1: Yeah, I've heard that argument and it, it makes sense. But you could have also reasoned that after the after you got the first two Supreme Court justices.
0: Yeah, but this one, this one, this one, this one is the big one. OK, so what else are you looking at this week? I mean, it's we're all we're all locked in. <sighs>
1: Well, I do have a piece coming about Kelly Loeffler, because watching her, I'm just struck when I look at how she got where she is today by the fact that she has deliberately selected this path for herself, right? She threw herself into the contest to be appointed to that seat, um, which she got largely by virtue of her wealth and the fact people thought she would be the type of woman who could appeal to suburban women. And now she's just turned herself into this Attila the Hun wannabe that hangs out with QAnon members of Congress, aspiring QAnon members of Congress and the Georgia militia. And I guess a lot of people would say, oh, well, she's just doing that because that's what it takes for her to win. Yeah. And I push back and say, no, she's doing this because she wants to. She is the wealthiest member of Congress. She, doesn't she and her need husband it. are worth five hundred million dollars. Charlie, if you had five hundred million dollars, would you be hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene?
0: Nope.
1: Hell no. But this is what she's chosen for herself, and so that's what I've been meditating on this morning.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I meditated on all that all the time. That you know, do people have any pride left? Is there something you're missing there? Because th- this is a choice and it's mm-hmm. not inevitable that they do it. And if you're that wealthy, do you need to abase yourself in this particular way? And apparently- It's because a- they
1: it's want to. Theory. They want to do this. Yeah. They want to be terrible people, right? Like they, they have selected this. Is you know, I didn't put this in my piece, but I was thinking about it. It's kind of like people are men who say they go to the strip club for the steaks or the good dinner that they serve. Like, shut up. You're there. You're there for the sleaze. She was there for the sleaze.
0: Oh, could we talk about sleaze for a minute? Since we're sure. going there? What else are we going to do? OK, <laughs> so in, in North Carolina, the, the Democratic candidate, Cal oh, Cunningham, yeah. basically confessed that he engaging in, in an extramarital affair. Um, and you and I are both old enough to know when that would have been a problem in the, in the race. Apparently, he's still 10 points ahead. And even though he's lost some ground with women, he appears to be picking up um, Picking up support among men and and young people. (laughs) (gasps) I mean, is that just a blip or I mean, is this what?
1: I don't know.
0: It's like an old scandal. I'm just going to assume people really want to
1: get rid of Tom Tillis.
0: Yeah. People are done with certain kinds of scandals. It's like, you just never know. There was a time When If you admitted you smoked pot, that might have been a career ender, right? Well, forget that. Then there was a time when, you know, if you joked about rape, that's still the case, that you're going to be gone or had an extramarital affair. We have a president who pays off porn stars. And this will be an interesting story at the end. Like, what is what constitutes a scandal anymore, right? I mean, what is scandalous behavior? I don't know. That's
1: a good question. What would actually be? Well, Katie Hill resigned.
0: And I think he regrets that now.
1: Well, they're making a movie about her. I mean, did you see that Elizabeth Moss is going to play her? And then the uh, ghost of Katie Hill's Twitter account started tweeting about how embarrassing and terrible it was because she, you know, took advantage of misused staff, which I was like, go Katie Hill's old Twitter account.
0: I did. I did see that. Yeah, there are, there are some things that are always going to be to be scandals, but uh, constantly have to revise that. I mean, you know, Al Franken is is, is back big time. I saw, I saw him on television yesterday. Oh, what's he doing? Uh, I don't know. He's just he's punditizing, you know, like, like uh, we do. He's, he's become a talking head. He'd well, be a, I'm not
1: going to sit by him. You know what, though?
0: He'd be a great podcast guest, wouldn't he?
1: Well, you talk to him. I don't want okay. to. <laughs> to
0: you know <laughs> what? There's a limit for everybody. Amanda Carpenter, thank you so much for joining me this morning on the podcast. Appreciate it very much. Three weeks to go, 21 days. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will do this all over again tomorrow.